Welcome to Offkey, a Membrane Labs podcast about the music industry for the industry novice. I'm your host, Talia Seidman-Wright. This season of Offkey will be taking a turn down a new path, moving on from the who question towards the how-to. My hope is that this season will act as a music industry 101, providing accessible information for industry newcomers like myself, who are interested in building an understanding of how to earn money and achieve success as a creator in Canada's music industry. Join me as I learn about the ins and outs of the music industry from the perspective of two key players in the creation of music, the songwriter and the recording artist. Through research and conversations with music professionals, I'll explore how these creators make money and who and what they should be aware of as they build careers in the ever-evolving music business landscape. This week, we'll be looking at our first character in the storyline of the creation of music, the songwriter. As with anything in music, There is no single definition for a songwriter. The role can vary depending on whether they write independently, with co-writers, or are signed to a publisher. Sometimes the songwriter is also the performer of their own songs, such as Ed Sheeran or Adele. But oftentimes the songwriter is working behind the scenes, writing songs for performing artists who then release the songs under their own names. It's important to note that singer-songwriter artists like Ed Sheeran and Adele do not only write solo, they also work with songwriters who the general public may not know the names of. If we look at the songs that top the Billboard Hot 100 chart each year, the majority of them were written by four or five songwriters. Featured performers, on the other hand, are usually front and center. The first thing one generally sees on the cover of a CD or single is their name in bold. However, one has to take extra steps to find information about songwriters, making them appear less central to the musical work. Now, perhaps through the rise in social media, songwriters and other industry professionals working behind the scenes have more of a platform for connecting with the general public than in the past. Because of this, there's ample opportunity for us as consumers to learn more about the songwriters behind our favorite songs. Last week, we touched on the history of songwriting in popular music, going back to New York City's Tin Pan Alley, where music publishers set up shop in Manhattan's Flower District in the late 19th and early 20th century. The name supposedly originated from the tin-like sound of pianos being played by song pluggers that one would hear as they walked down the street. The Tin Pan publishing houses were a meeting point for composers, lyricists, Broadway performers, and musicians to plug, purchase, and publish sheet music for the songs of American popular music's golden age. Although this shifted during the singer-songwriter era of the 1960s and 70s with artists like Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell, The Tin Pan Alley days of exchanging songs between writers and artists is largely how pop music functions today. As discussed last week, while the role of the songwriter has evolved throughout history, the separation between recording artist and songwriter remains relevant today. And for clarity's sake, I'll refer to the songwriter as separate from the recording artist. So what does the role of the songwriter entail, and what does the writing process look like? How do they get their songs to recording artists who might want to record them? How do they make money from the songs they write? In this episode, we'll get started on answering these questions and go deeper in episodes to come. First off, let's look at how to get started building one's career as a songwriter. I had the pleasure of speaking with Karen Kosowski, a songwriter and producer based in Nashville, Tennessee, who grew up in Winnipeg, lived and worked in Toronto's music industry, and relocated to Nashville, commonly known as Music City, to further pursue a career in music. Um, But I started out in music back in my hometown of Winnipeg, Mm -hmm. and... uh, when I first, I mean, I always did music, um, growing up, you know, was in piano lessons and all the different things, but, um, but I loved writing songs and I loved creating things. And, 
when I was first starting out, I thought, you know, um, well, I see all these artists out there performing their own music that they've written. And so Mm -hmm. I thought, well, I like to write songs, so I guess that's what I should do. I should go out and perform it, you know? Um, so I spent like a good decade, like, you know, writing and recording and, and touring and, and doing my own music and, and doing a lot of it, like very do it yourself, you know? Um, but that's how I got my start in terms of like producing records and writing songs and digital recording. And, um, it was a really, a real wide, (laughs) wide range of experience on all the sides of being Mm -hmm. an artist and all the things. And, um, and then when I, when I graduated, so to speak in my brain and realized like, oh wait, I can actually, you know, work with other artists and do this. And, and, uh, I really, I found like, that's what I loved. You know, I loved working behind the scenes and, and writing, creating the songs with people and helping bring artists' visions to life with record, with recording and making, you know, making albums and singles. And and that, that was like, that's when everything really clicked for me, that, that that's where I was getting my love of it. So I spent, you know, I've, I've been doing that for as long as I was an artist, I guess now. So it's like, it's been a whole 22 years. Wow. You know, growing up, I, I took piano lessons and I did all the rural conservatory right uh, up to like the degree level. And, and, uh, I did a short stint at the university of Manitoba, um, for their, at their school of music there. But for me, it was like, I mean, I probably, if I was wanted to stay in, in college or school, I probably should have been looking at somewhere outside of my pond and going to somewhere that did like a recording program or mm. something like that. But, um, I, I found that like I realized once I got into the school of music at U- university of Manitoba, that it wasn't, they didn't have the same kinds of programs that would have been more interesting to me. You know, it was more like performance or teaching or right. composition that was more from a classical standpoint. So, right. Yeah. When I, like using Nashville as an example, when I first got started here, mm-hmm. A lot of it was like I had a friend who had moved here or was down here for a bit of time and they they had met a few people through their friends. And, right. and then, you know, so the, so my friend hooked us up with some co-writes with some of those people. And then that meant when I came back the next trip, those writers were interested in writing with me. <laughs> and in the meantime, you know, sometimes I met like through those writers, I met their publisher who was like, Hey, we like what you did. We have someone else we think you should maybe try writing with if you're interested. And, and it really, it's just like so organic, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm also like personally myself, I'm not one of those people that like goes and hangs out at, um, a lot of different events that often, or, um, or goes to a lot of shows even. I, I, I should go more than I do, but I, I just like, I don't have a lot of time for it because yeah. I'm here in the cave doing stuff. <laughs> um, but, you know, definitely the times I've done that, I've also, you know, definitely run into people that, oh, I've been meaning to, you know, reach out to you or, you know, it's, it's cool when you, when you meet people, people that way. Um, but I think definitely just like, again, looking around you and seeing who, when you're first starting out as a writer, seeing who around you is in your peer group. Right. And writing with them and you're all rising together kind of things. So like word will spread amongst your peer group and inevitably people in your peer group are also kind of like 
propagating new relationships. And mm-hmm. so it's this whole, again, kind of like a multi-threaded, <laughs> multi-faceted thing where it kind of grows itself if you, you know, keep getting yourself out there and writing with people and mm-hmm. and just doing good work. Your work will also bring people to the table, you know? Matteo Palmisano, a composer and producer featured in the last episode of Afki, also shared his perspective on networking in the beginning of building one's career as a songwriter. So it's important to meet other people. Like, you know, there are tons of people that are on the same level as you that are just as eager to want to be successful. Right. You know, and some people don't care to be in the spotlight. If you want to be in the spotlight, great. There are people that are happy to be in the background to help you get there because that for them is success. Totally. So, I mean, go to meetups, you know, connect with people on Facebook, on Twitter. Like, I started my own business um, where I made, I did most of my networking over Twitter. Wow. And yeah, and the majority of my business came from Twitter. Just meeting people online. Yeah. Um, And I feel like nowadays a lot of people are intimidated to go out and meet people. You know, the experience for them is like very scary, like putting yourself out there. Um, and there's a bit of a fine balance where like, you don't want to seem opportunistic to the, where you're like annoying people. Um, but you also don't not want to put yourself out there. Yeah. It's definitely a hard balance. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Uh, and, and at what point is too much, too much, right? Like, you know, it's, so it, it is difficult. So, I mean, if, if you're not comfortable going out and meeting people, uh, social media is a great way to connect with people. Right. You know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, like Facebook has tons of groups that you yeah. can connect with people online. Um, and yeah, I've gone to tons of meetups where I've met people like some of my best, uh, like some of my longest uh, business partnerships are with people that I met through meetups. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. So um, yeah, what I would recommend is um, if you're a songwriter and you want someone to help you with Uh, production, recording, things like that, so you can get demos out, Um, go to networking events where there are producers or engineers, you know? Like, if if you're a songwriter and you go to a songwriting meetup, then it's kind of like, well, you're bringing sand to the beach. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you want to co-write, I guess. Yes, but but I mean, if you're looking for someone to help you record, Mm -hmm. then, you know, a songwriting Mm -hmm. meetup is probably not the best place. Although, it it, 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 like, yeah, of course, if you're looking for co-writers, then it's a great place to go. Um, but yeah, you know, if you're a songwriter, you want to find an engineer producer, go to a producer's meetup, Right. you know, and producers are also looking for songwriters. Right. So it works right. both ways, right? Beyond networking and building relationships in the business, we should consider what the songwriting process actually looks like. Probably the most simple way to imagine the songwriting process is one person sitting at a piano with a guitar or making a beat on a digital audio workstation and coming up with a chord progression, melody, hook, lyrics, etc. This more independent process is definitely how a lot of songwriting is done, and with technological innovation of the past few decades, there are many tools at the solo songwriter's disposal. Karen Kosowski shared her experience using technology to learn more about production alongside her songwriting. I also spoke with Catherine Calder of The New Pornographers and Oscar Street Records about her experience learning about music production and how it shaped and changed her songwriting process. Honestly, it's been like an entire career of trial and error. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Kind of jumping in and getting my hands dirty, learning from anyone around me that I can, anyone who would be kind enough to like, you know, let me watch over their shoulder 
Um, and, and, and really just like trial and error. Like, cause a lot of it, I was like, when I was first starting out, I was like in Winnipeg and I was renting gear from Long McQuaid and setting up in a coffee shop and trying to figure out how to make a live <laughs> recording that way. And then, wow. you know, overdub <laughs> stuff on top. And, um, yeah, it, honestly, I, I don't know, I guess I'm just a big nerd and I really like to <laughs> mess around with stuff until I get something that I, that I like, you know? Yeah, that's cool. That takes a lot of patience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I also really like, I wish that I had like the kind of resources when I was starting out that people have now, like in terms of mm-hmm. just, you know, you, you just enter anything into Google and, and even now, like every, like I'm always like still learning stuff and it's like, yeah, geez, how do I do this? Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's so easy to find stuff now that it's like, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so other than like you're, you're sort of just throwing yourself into anything that came your way, was there anything else that other skills that you found really essential or like did you find certain people that you connected with that sort of helped you move along in your career? Hmm. Well, there's definitely been you know, people that have come and gone from, Mm -hmm. from my, uh, from my experience and, and, and have taught me things and I've, I've learned from getting to either, either, you know, just being in writing sessions and, and collaborating with them and, and Mm kind of learning from, from what they bring to the table there and what they do. And, um, but also, you know, um, working with people in studios and, and the times where I've, you know, been able to record in, in a larger studio and, and watch over an engineer's shoulder or, <laughs> yeah, you know, just, or even just comparing notes with other, other producers or other friends. I mean, um, I think probably though, in terms of like skills, like, I think it really helps to be detail oriented for me <laughs> and for what I do, especially as a producer. I mean, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, trying to be a sponge <laughs> and absorb everything and also just being very very aware of details yeah absolutely my experience has been that learning to record was like the best thing I could have ever done cool because aside from like learning my instrument which you know I'd already done at that point and like singing all that kind of stuff like that foundational stuff like one of the next things um you know, and I was fortunate because my husband um, is a recording engineer. And so he obviously has a lot of those skills and abilities and was able to help me set up what I needed and able to help me troubleshoot and stuff like that. But a lot of it was YouTube tutorials (laughs) about recording and and like the software and like, why isn't this working and, you know, um, all that kind of stuff. But once you kind of get over that and you start getting more comfortable with the program, Um, I found that it really helped my songwriting to be able to record as I was writing. And not only just because I seem to have like the memory of a goldfish sometimes for like, 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 like I'll be writing a melody and I'll be like, that sounded great. And then I cannot for the life of me remember what it was. And so I became kind of like early on like pretty aware that I had to record things as I was singing them and not necessarily in a multi-track way. Um, 
until, you know, like the last, within the last five years, but um, with a tape recorder, you know, like literally I would have to record it because I would always forget. Yeah. And, I feel that. <laughs> yeah. Like, cause it's kind of ephemeral, you know, you're kind of just playing around and you're like sort of singing and you know, like making up some melody and then you're like, Oh, that was cool. But I have no idea what it was. And so I hated that. I hated losing a melody to that, yeah. to my mem- to my bad memory. And so, um, so now when I record, um, it just means I could like, you know, I can write a melody and I could write a harmony and let's say I'm not totally happy with the melody. I could change, I could just change some parts of the harmony to become the melody, or I could like add, you know, you can just do so much right. composing by layering things and, right. and like hearing you just hear different things when different layers go on the recording. And, and sometimes I'll record kind of like three harmonies, one over the other. And then one melody will emerge that was like way more interesting than anything that, that happened on its own. And, and, and that is like so valuable to me, um, that, that kind of different perspective on, on songwriting. So I'm a huge, like, just, I'm a huge, um, proponent of learning to record because then you're also in control and, and it makes studio time more efficient. Um, it makes it less expensive. It makes it more manageable for musicians to record if they already kind of have an idea of what they want before they go into the studio. You don't spend your time in the studio kind of working out parts necessarily you can record over demos you know and that's totally fine and legitimate and also you get kind of cool interesting sounds that maybe you wouldn't have gotten otherwise and it's important to kind of capture those right interesting kind of parts of recordings which is what music fans love when they listen to a recording is like oh what's that crazy sound going on there so true and you know and it could be just some weird thing that you did in your bedroom it doesn't have to you know it's not necessarily some grand you know, crazy recording thing. Often it's just like a neat little sound that happened, you know, in this circumstance and you capture it and then you have it, you know, and, um, yeah, for all of those reasons, I think learning to record is fundamental songwriting tool for me. Cool. Yeah. And, and I would encourage people to do that. Oftentimes songwriting involves multiple writers who connect with one another either on their own initiative or sometimes through a record label or publisher. Publishers are important players on the songwriting side of music, and they play a key role in connecting songwriters with one another and getting their songs to the right recording artists. We'll get into this more later on when we look at the songwriter's team and the role of the publisher in more depth. Karen Kosowski shared her experience collaborating with songwriters in Nashville and explained how the Nashville songwriting community is a lively place where music publishers are very active in connecting songwriters and getting songs to the right artists. Well, I am and I am self-published. Mm-hmm. Um, a publisher is someone that a songwriter would partner up with um, who can help with exploiting the songs that you write mm. to their full potential. Okay. So that could mean... Um, that could mean taking the song that you wrote and pitching it to an artist who's looking for songs for their record. Right. Um, that could mean pitching it to a, a TV show that's looking for a song that your your song seems like it could be a good fit for. Um, a publisher is great for connecting writers with artists who are wanting to co-write. 
Okay. Um, and publishers do a lot of that where they, especially here in Nashville, publishers, you know, they're managing huge calendars for their writers and their writers are, you know, co-writing with different people every day of the week, sometimes twice. Wow. Um, publishers also uh, handle the business side of stuff for you. So, you know, making sure that all your money is being collected from everywhere in the world and all the different royalty streams that uh, exist, you know, it's right. a lot to administrate. So, but every publisher is different too, you know? Um, so I think it, it all comes down to the type of publisher you have and what, what your, what your arrangement with them is, you know, mm-hmm. what, what you're looking for in your public, for your publisher to do. And if, if they'll do that for you, you know, it's different for everyone, but there's such a, the, the scene here is, is so cool. Um, and unlike anywhere I've ever seen in any of the cities I've written in, you know, where um, some some writers are are jumping between, you know, a 10 a.m. write and then they're at another write, write at 3 p.m. And then sometimes they even go to another write at 7 p.m., you know? Wow, yeah. I feel like here, um, even if you are um, signed to a publisher, there's a lot of cross-pollination. Okay. I think that, you know, publishers work together. Publishers are constantly, you know, looking for new and, and cool creative collaborations. And I, because I'm self-published, um, you know, I'm in contact with several publishers who often, you know, think of me for rights when, when something comes up, right. you know, whether it's one of their writers and an artist and they think, oh, may- maybe Karen would be cool for this. Um, and so I'm always grateful when someone thinks of me in that way. Um, yeah, I feel like it's just, there's a lot of just cross pollination, a lot of creative collaboration all the time. Um, just like anything that's, that's creative, um, there's no one way to go about it. Mm -hmm. I would say though, that writing sessions in my world tend to look like me, another writer who is, um, usually more focused on writing melody and lyrics, Mm -hmm. um, and then either another pro writer or an artist who is looking for songs, who right. is looking to co-write. So, and in that role, I mean, the thing for me is that, like, I kind of adapt to whatever the room needs that day. Yeah. So, and whatever, however those writers want to write, however that artist feels most inspired Sometimes the artist comes in and has, you know, a very specific idea of what, what they, what they want or what they need. And sometimes we start from scratch and sometimes it's, you know, they have a, they have a, they might have like a beat that they like, and then we Mm. steal a little idea from that beat. And then we, you know, go somewhere completely different with it and, and build something. And maybe that'll be me jamming out with a keyboard or a guitar or them jamming out with a guitar or you know, and then somewhere in the process, someone hears a melody or, mm-hmm. you know, other times, sometimes I'm bringing in some snippets of idea. Like I, I might have 30 seconds of a bit of a vibe that I've produced up. Right. So it could be a bit of a beat, um, some chords, maybe some, sometimes, sometimes they're longer. Sometimes they, you know, it just depends on how inspired I was to, <laughs> when I was messing around with the idea. <laughs> But just some just some vibes. I like I always try to have some vibes on hand because 
a lot of writers and a lot of artists like to kind of, they, they get more inspired by that sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, totally. Um, and they can kind of, they, they immediately hear different kinds of melodies or different kinds of lyrics than they would have if they were just sitting with a guitar, you know? Yeah. So that can be a head start. Um, but again, depending on, depending on what's going on in the room, depending on how quickly it's moving, depending on, you know, sometimes it'll be, um, you know, that bit of a vibe and I'll, I'll sketch down something or I'll, I'll already have the vibe going and then we'll all be hammering out the melody and the lyrics together, right. you know? Right. Um, or sometimes, sometimes if it's appropriate, you know, and the, the other two writers are like off to the races, I might, you know, start building more of a track because we need that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then we're, we're always, but I'm always checking in with them and they're always checking in with me and we're running ideas past each other. And it's like, um, that's how I, that's how I tend to work. It just depends on what the room needs that day. Okay. You know? Yeah. Another interesting way of collaborating with other songwriters is to attend songwriting camps. Recently, I've noticed a lot of the emerging artists I follow posting about attending songwriting camps, where songwriters from similar or a range of genres are brought together to write songs. I read an article recently which explained how these camps are becoming more and more popular in the pop songwriting world because they create a space for more interesting songs to be created with a range of diverse influences. SOCAN facilitates camps both abroad and locally at their offices across Canada. They've started a program called Song Camp Mondays, which aims to bring the camp experience to as many SOCAN members as possible. Along with Karen Kosowski, I spoke with Mike McCarty and Holly Fagan from SOCAN about the organization's songwriting camps and programs for songwriters to connect and collaborate. Yeah, writing camps are great. Um, I've done several in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I did one recently in the Dominican Republic wow. that was put on by... Um, the Canadian Country Music Association and SOCAN. Yeah, it was really fun um, and nice to get away in the middle of winter. Yeah. <laughs> um, those things are great. Like they're a great networking tool. They're a great chance to like kind of go on some new blind date co-writes, you know. Mm-hmm. And in terms of how they work, I mean, usually it's like 15 or 16 writers or something and and everyone is camped out at some location for anywhere between three to five days and every day um, all the writers get split into groups of, you know, three, three writers say in a room, which is the most common. Um, And everyone goes off into their little, you know, rooms and writes all day long. And then some, some, um, some songwriting camps, there's actually like a, a purpose, like, okay, we're all writing to pitch songs. I did one, we all wrote to pitch songs for the Pan Am Games when they oh. were happening in Toronto. Okay. Interesting. Um, so everyone that week, that's that was the focus, you know. Wow. Um, to generate content. And that'll happen also for, sometimes for publishing companies or sometimes for, um, sometimes with like a, a, in mind, like a film and TV, you know, for sync and stuff like that, where you're aiming at, at music that can be used specifically for pitching for that kind of stuff. Um, right. Okay. Or sometimes it'll be that a certain artist is looking for songs for their record. And so their label sets up a songwriting camp and we'll, we'll gather a whole bunch of producers and writers together. And that artist is sometimes there, sometimes writing. And 
um, and just trying to generate a bunch of potential songs that could end up being on that record. Things like that. We have songwriting camps for, for more established writers uh, and up-and-coming, right. sort of established up-and-coming writers, if that's not an oxymoron. Um, <laughs> and what we're trying to do in a broad sense is, is foster collaboration and, and networking in our, in our uh, creator community. So that's what the song camps do. Um, we, we're sitting here at SoCan's headquarters in Toronto in our in our uh, little studio called the Sound Lounge, yeah. and um, this is intended to again foster collaboration. We have uh, members can book it out, and usually they book it out to write with co-write with other people. And uh, we have a similar uh, facility in our Vancouver office and in our LA office, and soon in our Montreal office. And um, we have a program we run called Song Camp Mondays, which so far is one Monday a month. Uh, eventually, it'll be hopefully every Monday. Uh, and that is where it's, in, again, intended to foster collaboration. So it's for people who have never collaborated or who want to find new collaborators. And you sign up, and we kind of arrange you in, a, in a, almost a blind date manner based on listening to the music and, and getting a feel for what your, your specialty might be. Right. And we put together teams of three. And uh, they'll, they'll come in and they'll write all day in our in our studio, and um, we get uh, they get a pizza lunch provided by the Songwriters Association of Canada, um, and uh, that Song Camp Mondays has been very successful in, c in creating lasting uh, writing relationships amongst people, That's and awesome. the writing rooms themselves we find one of the funny we didn't never thought of in advance, but it's people the writer the members who use it often tell us that it's a safe space to write and to meet somebody new mm -hmm. right so right. somebody's if you never met them before and you have an apartment they have an apartment you don't yeah. want to go to their apartment you don't want no, to come to yours no that's so true it's corporate yeah. it's <laughs> yeah 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 totally. i never thought of that beyond the creative process my question with regards to the business side of all of this collaborative songwriting is how is ownership of the song divided between co-writers as we discussed last week, songwriters hold composition or publishing rights over a musical work. So what determines an equal split versus dividing composition rights proportionally? Or are the splits predetermined based on the regulations of the city or country you're writing in? Karen Kosowski explained how composition credits are divided between co-writers in a room in Nashville, explaining how the standard is an equal split. Is there a way to determine like a proportion of a song um, or is it always like an equal split? as a rule in nashville it is okay um you know i've heard of things in different scenes in different ways but no i mean here it's like everyone in the room is getting a fair everyone's getting the same cut of the song right the writing of the song even if you, you know? brought something to it ahead of time definitely okay interesting because we all bring something to it you know whether whether you had the original idea um or whether you said the the, the one thing that like took it in a completely different direction or inspired even if even if you said the thing that didn't make it but then <laughs> that gave someone else an idea that they wouldn't have had if you hadn't said that idea like I always I've always felt like equal splits make the most sense um except in the cases where you know you might have a, like a whole band mm -hmm. that are all in the room writing and maybe there's like four or five people in the band yeah in those situations, then uh, there have been times where sometimes I've negotiated with my wh whatever other other top liner that we're bringing in. Like if there's myself as the producer writer mm -hmm. and another top liner and then a band of like four or five people, that's a lot of people in the room. 
Um, so sometimes we'll negotiate something, but it's still try. We still still try to do it in in a way that seems fair, you know, and and it's in advance. Like it's not like everyone's sitting there afterwards and like counting up, you know, lyrics that yeah, contributed. Yeah. Like that's 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 maddening. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and you want everyone to feel like they. I think it's important that everyone feels like their contribution is uh, valued. Yeah, and that they feel free to contribute their best work. Yeah, always. totally. Yeah. And they're not just trying to contribute stuff just to get words in the song, like contribute your best work. Yeah. That's yeah, what you're sure. trying to do, you know? I also spoke with Jonathan Simkin, founder of 604 Records, who used to work as an entertainment lawyer, representing artists and negotiating deals for them. Jonathan spoke about the complexities of dividing composition credits between a band and how songwriting splits are greatly varied artist to artist. It can be done a million different ways, and um, that's one of those questions that is hard to answer because yeah. it is done so many different ways. So, yeah, um, so from a pure, a purely legal perspective, um, let's say I'm in a band with four guys, uh, and we don't have a band agreement, um, mm-hmm. uh, which most bands don't. We don't have a written agreement, um, and I write a song. I write the lyrics. I write the melody, and um, but the band records it. Mm-hmm. Um, I own that song still. That's my piece of property. Um, right. The fact that I'm in a band doesn't change that. It doesn't change copyright law. If I wrote the words and I wrote the melody, then I wrote the song. Yeah. Um, now, bands generally have some agreement about how that works. Sometimes they split up the revenue, even though they don't split up the ownership. So I might say to this band, my bandmates, uh, look, uh, I wrote the song, and I ain't, that's not going to change. And I'm registering myself as the writer in SoCan, but because I want to share the wealth and because I understand that your contributions to this band have also added value to this, I am willing to pay each of you 10% of the publishing revenues from the song. Oh, okay. But some bands will go further and say, I'm willing to give you 10% of the copyright and royalties to this song. That's what's complicated. But the point is, I guess you can do it however you want. Um, so if, if I wanted to actually split up the copyright, regardless of the fact that I was the, really the only one who wrote it, I, mm-hmm. I have a right to do that. If I wanted to just split up the revenue, I have a right to do that. Right, um, okay. You know, sh- Show me five different bands, and I'll probably show you five different ways. Yeah. Like, in some bands, it's like whoever wrote it owns it. And that's Mm -hmm. why in some bands, you have, like, almost like a – there's almost like a a class system within the band because you got the writers getting super rich and the the other people not getting super rich. Connected to songwriting splits is the topic of sampling. When you use someone else's musical work in a new musical work of your own, Getting permission and figuring out the songwriting split is crucial. Sampling has become huge in the last few decades, particularly through the genre of hip-hop. Hip-hop was founded on the use of sampling other songs, often without permission, coming out of the era of DJs who would loop vinyls to create new tracks to be rapped over and danced to. I spoke with both Jonathan Simkin and Matteo Palmasano about sampling, and how to get permission ahead of time, and their experience and observations on that process. Okay, so... When you sample a song, you're, you're literally taking 
another master recording and then making it part of a new master recording. Mm -hmm. And the best example I can probably give is I was the lawyer for the band Len, who you probably don't remember, but they had a big, big hit called Steal My Sunshine. Oh, yes. And um, that song has a sample from a very famous song in the 70s. Oh, really? What's so, More, More, More by Andrea True Connection. Oh, okay. In fact, if you, if you go and listen to More, 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 mm -hmm. um, and you listen to the instrumental bridge, which is towards the end of the song, you'll probably yeah. have a little giggle and go, oh, God, that's Steal My Sunshine. Right, yeah. Um, um, and so we had to do a deal with the record company who put out More, 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 the master mm -hmm. owner, and with the writers of More, More, More. And right. that's how it basically works is that you, you and, and, you know, back then, that was 20 years ago, uh, it, was, it worked very differently than it does now where there's mm -hmm. more of a sort of standard. But, yeah, I mean, you use somebody's uh, song, like if you sample somebody's song, you have to settle with the, with the rights owners. So sometimes that means you just pay them a lump of cash. Here, mm -hmm. I want to use the sample from your song. Here's uh, $1,000, thank you. And I don't have to pay you anything else, and that's it. But more usually, you're paying both the master owner and the publishing owner um, a chunk of money up front mm -hmm. um, and giving them also a percentage of the ownership of the song. And, of course, there's that really famous story of um, Bittersweet Symphony, you know, by The Verve, yeah. um, who sampled... Um, the strings from a, a Rolling Stone song, and I believe had to give up 100% of the copyright. So I mean, it's it's that's 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 it. So I mean, you know, how much you have to give up? Well, that's a subject of negotiation. <sighs> okay. <laughs> Again, I'm gonna start this off by saying I'm not a lawyer. Um, personally, I stay away from sampling right. everything. I, uh, like I, I start out in hip hop and I did a lot of that stuff. Um, and I always create everything from scratch. I learned how to sample off of vinyl, uh, right. and, and I learned how to program on an MPC, um, you know, MPC 2000 was my first, uh, drum machine and cool. sampler. And yeah, it's, it's, that sampler was uh, my best friend for, for, for my early stage. Yeah. Um, but while I was sampling, the producers never once were like, Oh, by the way, in, you know, the legal aspect of the sampling, blah, blah, blah. They didn't care. They just did it. Right. They just made it because it's easier to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. <laughs> <laughs> Game. <laughs> yes and i don't i don't um i don't advocate that people do that uh it's disrespectful to steal other people's music um the way that i see it is i wouldn't like someone stealing my music um that being said if someone did steal my music and it became massively successful then i would be happy because then i could <laughs> i'm entitled could, to that the, right. those royalties so at the end of the day um if you produce something using a sample and it becomes massively successful yeah. then you're probably going to get sued for it but you're going to be famous right which will launch <laughs> your career yeah right mm -hmm. and if it doesn't become massively successful then no one's going to sue you because no one cared that you used it right because i guess if you were not big enough yet and you yes. asked to use 
a really big recording. Yeah, you, they'll they charge you. Say, well, they'll charge you a ton of money. Right. Yeah. Right? Or they they might just say no. Right. If it's like not worth their time. No, they'll they'll give you a price. Okay. Yeah. But you wouldn't be able to afford. Yeah. It. No one's yeah. gonna say no to you to using their music because they want money. Right? right. Right. They'll just give you a price that you probably can't afford. Right. So I will say if you are going to do through legal channels to distribute a record. Um, okay. So it's fine. Not, it's not fine. Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's not fine to steal music. Um, but if you're independent and you choose to sample a song on your own accord and release it independently, then there aren't any other legal obligations that you need to worry about because it's just you. If, however, you're signed to a major or a record company or whatever, any sort of label, uh, and you're in a, you're contractually uh, obligated to another entity and you use a sample, then you're not the only person that's now involved in a potential lawsuit. Right. It's also the people that you're signed with. And that will, depending on what happens, it'll most likely sever your relationship. Mm -hmm. And you'll probably... Um, <clears throat> so it'll sever your relationship with those people and you'll probably never end up getting work right so so it's risky <laughs> it's very risky if you're not successful you won't get bothered if it's yeah. massively successful you'll have to pay but at least you'll be famous right yeah and that's actually what happened with um uh danger mouse yeah danger mouse is one of my favorite producers um he became famous because he uh, sampled Jay-Z's Black Album and the oh. Beatles' White Album and made the Grey Album. And it was just such a phenomenal piece of work. Yeah. And he was sued for it. But who cares? When you're, when you're famous, then you have all these doors that open up yeah. for you. Right. So even if you're broke, you now have the opportunity to work with all these amazing people because right. they're like, what you did was awesome. Can right. you do that for me? Wow. You know? Yeah. Okay, so there are no rules. There. there really isn't. It's whatever you're willing to agree to, yeah. you know, as long as you're aware of the consequences. Overall, sorting out songwriting splits are crucial to determining what proportion of royalties you're entitled to. With composition credits and negotiations with collaborators in mind, how does the songwriter make money? Going back to the first episode, royalties are determined by certain rights. And to songwriters, the primary rights are the reproduction right and the performing right which results in mechanical royalties, public performance royalties, and sync royalties. Just to review the basics, mechanical royalties entail a mechanical reproduction of a song, for example on records, cassettes, CDs, or digital downloads. Public performance royalties include the playing of a song on the radio or streaming online in bars and restaurants, pretty much any time a song is played in public. Synchronization royalties involve the use of a song in a video format, such as a film or TV show. Mike McCarty from SOCAN explained mechanical royalties and the history of how they came to be. He explained reproduction and performing rights, which SOCAN collects royalties on for songwriters. Jonathan Simkin also explained how royalties are divided and what portions songwriters are entitled to. Basically, there's two copyrights in a recording. There's the, there's the copyright of the recording, in other words, the, uh, the performance that's been captured. Um, one of our colleagues, uh, a guy named uh, uh, Jeff Price, his favorite example is Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You. Yeah. Okay, so Dolly Parton wrote that song by herself and she recorded it initially by herself. Uh, Whitney Houston also recorded it. Uh, that's a, people call it cover. They, Whitney Houston yeah. covered the song and she released that as well. So in, in Whitney Houston's 
recording, there's two copyrights. There's the, the, the performance of Whitney Houston, which has been fixed or recorded on tape or digitally, if, it, if you will. And Sony Records, her record company, owns that, um, that recording. And that recording has its own performance right. Uh, the song, I Will Always Love You, written by Dolly Parton, is what Whitney Houston was singing. That has its own copyright, and that's the, what we deal with. We deal with the copyright of the song. And it has its own performing right. So the other rights associated with that, uh, the basic right, the main basic other right is the reproduction right, which is the right to have your song reproduced. And initially, in the old days, that meant on sheet music. Then as technology evolved, it meant on a recording. And, um, and actually, the very first use of technology in, in uh, disruption of music with technology was disrupting the music publishing business when it went from sheet music to automatic piano rolls. Yeah. That's where the mechanical. Yeah, and that's and so what happened was that what music publishers whose job was to sign a songwriter and put and literally publish sheet music. Yeah. Uh, because here's how the, here's how the culture was in those days. There was no no electricity, no radio, no records, and so typically a, a modern family had a parlor or we would call a living room or family room now, and they had a piano, and every family had at least one person that knew how to play the piano and read music, and after dinner. They would sit around, and the person would play music, and the family would sing songs, yeah. and they would sing <laughs> popular songs that were that became popular. It, so this is before radio and everything. So how they become popular? Generally out of New York, generally from Broadway, yeah. right? So, so a, a music publisher would uh, would have somebody sitting in the in the window at Macy's playing the piano, trying to popularize or plug their latest Broadway song, and you'd be shopping at Macy's, and you'd stop and listen to it. Oh, I like that song. I remember seeing that in the play last week. And you buy the sheet music, you take it home, you put it in front of the, the, you know, your, uh, your, your son or daughter that plays the piano, and they would play the song, and people would sing it. That was, the music, that was the music business, and that was the music publishing business. And then along came robot pianos. Right, totally. mechanical yeah. piano players, which which were operated by a wind up, uh, you wound up a spring, mm -hmm. and you and you threaded in a paper, a roll of paper that had a bunch of punch holes in it, and as the paper uh, unwound, it would play different notes on the piano based on the holes on the on the on the, on the, on the piano roll, yeah. and so the music publishing community had had a problem, and the same problem the record companies had when Napster came along, and that was, hey, these people are using our music and making money off of it, we should be paid. And um, uh, of course, the piano roll companies uh, disagreed, and there was a, uh, you know years of lawsuits and and uh, new legislation, etc. And then when it all settled down, the uh, they all agreed that yes, this new mechanical device is using your your music, so we should pay you a royalty and get a license, and we'll call that that royalty or that license a mechanical license, a license to reproduce your song mechanically. That term has survived the, for the last hundred years and is still used to represent the, the concept of a reproduction right uh, in, 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 in a song, in a recording. Yeah. And I don't like the term. I like to use the re term reproduction right because the term mechanical dated. roots yeah. <laughs> it in the past yeah. and, and also makes it harder to understand how the reproducing a digital file is actually using the reproduction right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and, and so going back to the basic question, so, and everybody who writes a song, they have the basic, their copyright has these basic fundamental elements to it, performing right and the reproduction right. Uh, people that use the term sync, uh, that's getting music used in film or TV, that's really just a, a specialized 
uh, use of the reproduction right. It's using, it's reproducing your song in synchronization with the visual, and that's a different business model and a different economy and different rates and, and values. Right. But basically, those are the two main rights. It gets more complicated than that, but that, but if people focus on that, so. What SOCAN now is also involved in the reproduction right because we, we uh, uh, acquired the uh, Quebec organization that handled reproduction rights called SODRAC. Oh, yeah. And uh, so there was two, two organizations in Canada traditionally that handled reproduction rights, the CMRRA in, in Toronto, uh, Canadian Reproduction, Canadian Musical Canadian Musical Rights Reproduction Agency, <laughs> and, yeah, and, then, and SODRAC in Quebec. So we've acquired SODRAC, okay. and so now we offer uh, reproduction rights uh, as well. And the, the, the value to our members there is that it's one-stop shopping. You know, you, you register your songs with SOCAN, and you can license them both for performing rights and reproduction rights. Right. Uh, we're not fully integrated yet, but when we are, we'll have one statement, and, and so, so it'll be one-stop shopping wow. under one tent. Um, and because the two rights, the performing right and the reproduction right, are so intertwined these days in streaming and in the whole digital space, it makes sense to have one organization to handle them both for you. Right. Yeah. When I'm talking about this with artists, I usually draw a little graph. Mm -hmm. And um, I draw a little graph, and it's usually a uh, really bad reproduction of a CD. I can't really draw or a shit, so it's always a, a, a circle that isn't really much of a circle. Um, okay. but, um, but if you can imagine that, that every time you make a record, there's sort of two um, distinct revenue flows that come from that. One comes from the master and one comes from the song, and they do kind of mirror each other. So um, you have uh, on the publishing side, let's start with mechanical royalties. Mm -hmm. um, mechanical royalties are the royalties that um, it comes from the Copyright Act, which talks of the mechanical reproduction of a song. And really, that refers to the act of pressing a record. So every time you press a record, mm -hmm. um, you are reproducing the song. Um, and there is a royalty payable for that. And right. the royalty in Canada gets adjusted from time to time. Um, it's somewhere, I don't even know what it is, right? I think it's like 8.9 cents a song. Okay. Um, and that's, that's sort of agreed to between the publishers, whatever it's called, the Publishers Society, and the CMRA. They negotiate a rate, um, you know, or, uh, you know, every, uh, or the, sorry, the CMRA and the record labels. They'll negotiate mm -hmm. a rate every couple of years. You know, when I first started in the business, I think it was six cents. Now it's up to about nine cents. Okay. Um, uh, so, uh, again, that is a function of the reproduction of records. Um, but it is a publishing royalty because it is a, uh, it, it goes to whoever owns the song. And that's why, for example, Paul McCartney is so fucking rich because <laughs> his songs have been covered so many times. And right. that's always a good example that I give to someone that, like, let's say an artist, uh, well, let's take uh, Marianas Trench, who's on our label. So let's mm -hmm. say Marianas Trench decided to do an entire album of Beatles covers. Okay. Uh, the mechanical royalty goes to Paul McCartney because he wrote the songs. Wow. The whole, now, the whole mechanical royalty. No, because it's a publishing royalty. That, wow. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, so 
now the mirror of that on the master side is the record royalty. Okay. The record royalty is also a function of how many records are pressed and sold, but it's it goes to the recording artist. So in that okay. same example, in that same example, Marianas Trench would be getting the record royalty, 100%. Paul McCartney would be getting the mechanical royalty, 100%. Again, they're kind of mirror images of each other. Right. Record royalties is worth more, but it's still a function of um, the pressing and selling of records. Um, so those two kind of mirror each other. Record royalty, mechanical royalty. Karen Kosowski also shared her experience making money as a songwriter and discussed how small the payments are from streaming and the need for a change in rates to address this. Yeah. Um, I mean, so traditionally a mechanical royalty, uh, you know, if I had a song on a CD or, or a vinyl record or something, mm-hmm. um, you know, the writers of that song would all split a mechanical royalty that was, it's like nine cents, 9.1 cents or something is the statutory rate. Um, so we'd split that proportionally and, um, and that would be, you know, every, every sale, every CD, you know, um, the mechanicals on streaming are so like the decimal point is <laughs> like, <laughs> crazy like it's just it's fractions of fractions of fractions right. um so you know i mean i think we've all heard the horror stories of you know people who've had millions and millions and millions of streams and they're getting these tiny checks that you know wouldn't pay their mortgage right. you know yeah um so it's just it's disproportionate um again i don't know what the answer is like i i I'm really grateful to the people who are working hard on those issues and and hopefully hopefully something improves soon. I know that there have been small improvements made, but it still feels like a drop in the bucket compared to like like there's just you, you see the decline of songwriters. Yeah. And I've heard I mean I've only been in Nashville for, you know, a couple of years, but I've heard that, you know, the amount of songwriters in town has dropped by like I don't know, ten times. Like it used wow. to be ten times more than there like just pro songwriters um yeah yeah it has real real world consequences you yeah know? totally um you know there is money being made off streaming but it's it's the people who own the master that are making the money right now so i mean i don't want to take anything away from that that's that's great you yeah. know like um and there are some some tracks that i've had a partial cut of the master on and then i'm i'm seeing oh yeah no, there is money that exists from streaming. <laughs> it's just that right now, you know, in terms of the actual writers side of it, the publishing side of it, it that still hasn't really caught up and um yeah, I'm not I'm not the expert on that. I don't know what the answer is, but I'm just holding out hope. There's so many smarter people working on that and uh you know, I know that uh something's going to change. Right. <laughs> I just don't know when. I hope soon. Put simply, in order for songwriters to make money, they need to register with a collection society. In Canada, this would be SOCAN, while in the U.S. it would be ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC. Every country has their own system of royalty collections, and we'll go into this deeper later on in the season, when we look at collection societies. But the most important takeaway for now, for any Canadian songwriter listening to this, 
is to register with SOCAN so that you're set up to earn money when your musical creations are reproduced and performed. Building a career as a songwriter is a multifaceted and gradual process, and I hope the insights shared in this episode have been helpful. Here's some final advice for songwriters from Catherine Calder, Karen Kosowski, and Mike and Holly from SOCAN. The general advice to a songwriter um, is just write as many songs as you can. And um, that would be my general advice because you'll just have more material and you'll be constantly writing and you're just going to get better and better and better. And that is ultimately, I think, like being a songwriter and writing songs is generally, I'm making a broad statement here, but a, a lot of why people love listening to music is because they love a song. Right. And um, so you have that. So if you're a songwriter, then you, you're trying to write the songs that you want to write in the way that you want to write them. And the best way to do that is by writing a bunch of them. And so yeah. that you just get really good at it. Yeah. And then once you have written a really great song, well, then um, you kind of have to figure out what you're going to do with it. And um, I was actually just talking to somebody about this um, moments ago. And uh, I was saying that um, it's kind of best if you don't think about music as something like linear where it's like you do this and then you yeah. do this and then you do this and it's one like line. But if you think about it as like threads or like tentacles that you're like putting out into the world. And so if you're doing like all these different things, if you're like songwriting and you're like putting together a band and you're like recording, let's say in my particular genre, if you're doing like all of these things all at the same time and you're getting better at your instrument and you're getting better at performing and you're doing all these things, um, things just like will come together and it will kind of lead you in a, in a particular way. And I think that the more, more stuff that you're doing and the more, the more work you're putting into the songs and the music mm -hmm. part of it, um, then the other stuff comes as a result of that. Yeah, I think find your tribe. You know, find, I think, I know as, I know for writers, a lot of writers when you're starting out, and I, I, I've done it too, where when I was starting out, I was like, oh man, I want to write a song for this massive artist. That's my dream. And it's, it's great to have those dreams and stuff, but, um, A, it's really hard to get a cut with us, with an artist mm -hmm. nowadays, unless they've actually co-wrote it. Um, and B, I mean the best way to get start getting cuts as a writer um, is to start looking around you at who, who's your peer group, who's coming up around you, who can you collaborate with, who can you write with artists, who can you, who are some of the people who want to be writing for artists, go write with them. Right. Um, you know, all, I don't remember what the saying is something about all boats rise, rising tide lifts all boats. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, that's what we all have to do is, is, you know, look around us and and start to build up build a scene yeah totally. you know find your tribe build a cool scene get something really cool going and you know things will start clicking things will happen it's um you know the people that the people that are like the top people now were that tribe yeah you know just a few years ago yeah totally <laughs> Songwriters yeah. in particular, you know, 
people, yeah. there's a lot of stories, you know, people will relate the story of how they wrote their famous song. And in generally, I'd say if you'd lined up a hundred of the greatest songwriters of all time and yeah. brought the dead ones back to life, and you asked them all the same question, tell me about, you know, your big song, 90% of them would give you the exact same answer in the following order. I'm guaranteeing you this. First thing that they'd say is, I, f I wrote it in five minutes. Mm -hmm. yep. The second thing they'd say is, I felt like I didn't even write it. I yeah. felt like I was an antenna for it, so it came from the universe or yeah. whatever, right? Out Through of me. body, yeah. 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 And the third thing is, I thought it was the stupidest thing I ever wrote, and I never wanted anybody to hear it. <laughs> That's the common characteristic of all, those, of all those songs to people. But point being that, um, that the, the, the public hears that, that, oh, I wrote it in five minutes, I wrote it in five minutes. Elton John, I wrote it in five minutes. They think it's easy because yeah. it's songs, great songs sound so simple. They're like a 30 second commercial. Yeah. Well, that's easy. No, it's one of the hardest things to do. Totally. Uh, and these people will spend their whole life building to the point where they're ready for that lightning to strike and they write that song in five minutes. But what you don't see is all the sacrifice, mm -hmm. the struggle, the rejection that, went, the, that they went, went through for 10, 20 years before they got to that point, right? Yeah, and so, like honing that craft just so that it's like subconscious. Exactly. Right? Like it's not exactly yeah. right. Moments before falling yeah, asleep or totally. whenever yeah. it was. Yeah. So people yeah. have to be prepared to do that. But it, yeah. it takes not, the talent. It, yeah, you have to have the talent. But, you have but to then have getting that song, it. let's say they didn't sing it themselves, getting that song to the right person to sing yeah. it, yeah. right? That takes a lot of determination as yeah. well. You know, I've worked with a lot of artists in my career and, and had, had some success in helping them develop and go up through the steps and everything. And it's, it, it's really simple. You've got to be great. And, yeah. and you've got to focus 99% of your time and energy on making great music, however you do that. Thank you to Catherine Calder, Karen Kosowski, Matteo Palmasano, Jonathan Simkin, Mike McCarty, and Holly Fagan from SOCAN for their contributions to this episode. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Off Key. I've linked to the show notes for this episode in the description, so check those out for a summary of key points, links, and resources on the topics we discussed during this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. They really help us to improve and create the best content possible for our listeners. If you have any topics that you'd like me to cover, please email me at offkey at membran.net or send me a message at either Membran Labs or Talia SW on Instagram. This episode of Offkey is written and produced by me, Talia Seidman-Wright, with writing and research assistance from Dino Cilotti. Thank you to Torben Witterman for creating the music used in our intro and outro and transitions. Offkey is a member of Membrane Entertainment Canada, aka Membrane Labs, a music services company that provides distribution and label services for Canadian artists and labels. We're also exploring ways, like with this podcast, to help all musical artists be better informed, know their rights, and ensure that they get all of the money that is rightfully owed to them 